I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Song of Songs. It's about right in the middle of your Bible. (laughs) As you're doing that, I want to mention a couple of things as we begin this morning. Uh, One, this is the kind of Sunday when I wish we could go into extra innings. You know, I know it's been a wonderful service so far, and I have a lot of things I want to share with you, but I know we have a service following. So I'm going to go as far as I can today, and then uh, we'll just pick right up on this the next time that we meet. And then next Sunday, I just want you to know that we have some uh, special visitors that will be with us from Guatemala. Pastor Obispo, his wife Francisca, and Pastor Bartolome, who is the former pastor of the church in Guatemala that we've been working with. Uh, They will be here to share in our service. Pastor Obispo is going to give the message and and speak through a translator, uh, Jenny Coleman, that you know, Tumax. She's married now and has a baby, and they'll be here as well, and she's going to be a part of this. And it'll be a real exciting Sunday as we do a reverse mission trip, bringing them here to meet with us. And then just so you're prepared for it, at the end of the service next week, we're going to take a special offering for them. They have a building project going on in their church, and we could really accelerate what they are doing, assist them in that through a special offering that would be quite significant and a blessing to them. So come prepared for that as well as you, if you would, for uh, next Sunday after church. All right. Uh, Today we are beginning a new series that I'm calling the Five Little Scrolls. The Five Little Scrolls. And it refers to five books in the Old Testament that were some of the smaller books. You see the titles up here, Song of Songs and Ruth and Lamentations and Ecclesiastes and Esther. I think about that with the five little scrolls, even though the uh, books may be little, the titles for several of them are quite long. (laughs) And they are some of the least known books among Christians. I would guess that, you know, many of you and those of you who have been in other churches as well, have hardly ever heard a sermon on these books. Uh, They're not talked about a lot. And yet in Judaism, they were read every year, annually, in conjunction with different feasts that were a part of their celebrations and their traditions. The Song of Songs was read every year at Passover. Ruth was read at Pentecost. Lamentations on the 9th of Ab. Ab is a month in the Hebrew calendar. And it was the day on which Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And every year they had a day of fasting and mourning. And they continued to do that, remembering all of those kind of difficult events in their life, including the Holocaust in the past century. And then uh, the book of Ecclesiastes was read on the Feast of Tabernacles, and the book of Esther was read at Purim. Now, why are these books you know, so significant. I mean, why would they want them read every year? And why should we take the time to look at them? Well, when you think about it, each of these books deals with some pretty significant life issues, life questions. Song of Songs deals with love and marriage, the beauty of marital love. Ruth deals with fullness and grace. It takes the story of a person who goes from emptiness to fullness as a gift of God's grace. The book of Lamentations deals with the reality of sorrow and loss and grief and what do we do when there's tragedy and disaster in our world and how do we respond to that? Ecclesiastes raises the question, what's the meaning of life? What's this all about and why are we here? And Esther deals with God's providence and how His 
hand is sovereign and how he is at work over the events of history. And sometimes, you know, to the uh, person uh, who's looking at things, it just seems like, you know, where is God in the midst of things? But when we look back, we see how he is sovereign and in control and he is at work behind the scenes of history. We're going to talk about those things in the week ahead. These festivals and these days of remembrance all um, helped to solidify the community and the Jewish community. They had shared traditions, shared memories, important teachings and values that came directly out of God's Word, biblical truth. It reminded them of the power and greatness of our God. And I hope those things that we'll be looking at will remind us of that too. Today we're going to start by looking at the first half of the Song of Songs. This is the best of songs, and it celebrates the beauty of marital love. That title, Song of Songs, in the way it is written, is the, in grammar, it is the Hebrew superlative form. And that's why we can say that it means it's the best of songs. To say something is the Song of Songs means it is the best of songs. Just like uh, we would talk about the Holy of Holies, for example, is the most holy place. Or when we say of Jesus, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the best King. And He is the best Lord. He's the King over all other kings. He's the Lord over all other lords. That's the Hebrew way of saying that. And so this song is the best of songs that talks about the love between a man and a woman as they come together in marriage. Now why do we need to hear this message? Why do we need to look at the Song of Songs well, we live in an age, in a culture that is saturated with sex. And the message is quite frankly wrong in many cases. We're bombarded with it in advertising, in movies, in television, in music, and books. There's this constant kind of focus on things that are sexual. We see it in its illicit forms in our society in things like pornography and prostitution. We also see people wanting to push the bounds in this area in terms of alternative lifestyles. And whether it is stepping outside of the bounds in adultery or in premarital sex or in homosexuality, all of those things are outside of what God intended for His plan for love and sex and marriage. And the right way to respond to a culture that's really gone overboard with sex is not repression, it's not to stuff this thing. It's not silence, not saying anything about it at all, which leads to confusion because there's no message being given. And it's not license in which anything goes. You know, that's kind of the approach that happened in the 70s and beyond where anything was okay. And so today it's become commonplace and all over the board. The right response is to teach openly and honestly what the Bible has to say about love and sex and marriage and to look at it through His eyes. Well, when we come to this book, we begin by seeing that the Bible says that true love is a gift from God. It begins with Him, and we see that in chapters 1 and 2. We also see it when we go back in the Bible to the very first chapters that are there in the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, He brought them together to complement one another. 
Adam came to realize when he was made that he was alone in this world in a sense. He could see all of the other creatures and all of the things that God had made and it was very good. But it was not good for man to be alone. And so God created a helper who would be a complement to him. He created Eve out of the rib of the man and brought them together. And when Adam saw her, he was thrilled. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And the two of them came together, and they were both naked and not ashamed. You see, what God is telling us here is that love and sex and marriage were all created by God before the fall of man. Before sin had entered into the world. And it was good. And there was this intimacy and openness in this relationship. They were equals. They were different as male and female. They were different by design, both reflecting the image of God, both made in His image. They were partners. And there was no shame, no guilt, no sense of having to cover themselves at all in that original creation. And then sin entered the world and began to change those things. But even today, God's gift of love is meant to be celebrated and enjoyed. And when we see it in terms of His plan as Creator, it is a beautiful thing. You see, if God is the Creator of marriage, doesn't it make sense that He would have something to say about it and how it would work best? Sure. It's only natural to think that the Creator would have some guidelines and some instruction. And I'm so glad that this book is in the Bible, right smack in the middle of our Bible, as it talks about what love and marriage is really all about. It is a remarkable book, too, when you think about the time in which it was written, going back to the time of David and Solomon, about 1000 B.C., At that time, women were often treated as property. They had few rights, not much better than slaves. That was the culture in which this book was written. And yet here in this book, the husband and wife are again treated as equals. I mean, she speaks. She expresses her desires and her longings. And he speaks in response to her. And they are once again partners, freely giving their love to one another. It's like the Garden of Eden again in the way that it is written as these two come together and complement one another. Now, when I study this book, I want to be honest with you that there are a lot of questions about Song of Songs that I can't answer. One of the big questions that I wrestle with back and forth is that in the traditional view, there are two characters, Solomon and his bride. In the alternative view, there are three main characters, Solomon, the woman, and her true love, who is a shepherd in the hills. And here's what's going on in those two and why it's a little bit difficult going back and forth between them. In the traditional view, with the two characters of Solomon and his bride, the question most people ask is, which bride? And how could Solomon know anything about true love? I mean, here's a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And people struggle with that. You know, how could he? And I think the answer on the traditional view is just that he wrote better than he knew. (laughs) And he was guided, again, by the Holy Spirit on that. 
in the same way that he wrote Ecclesiastes where he experienced a whole lot of things in life that weren't good. But he came to a good conclusion about it. In the alternative view, which I favor, there are three main characters. And in that view, Solomon is the villain. Solomon is trying to take this young woman to be a member of his harem. But her heart and her love is for this shepherd in the hills. And that's what she's expressing back and forth. And you see the two speaking to them. With either view, both are celebrating... And the main theme is the beauty of love between a man and a woman. And I think that as you read this, like the New International Version gives us some real help here by putting these titles where the beloved is the woman who is speaking and the lover is the man who is speaking. And the dialogue goes back and forth between them. And so if you can kind of set those, sometimes that traditional or alternative view aside and just focus on this communication between the woman and the man you'll get the idea of what this book is all about. I also want to just give a little bit of information, too, uh, about the outline of the book and what we're going to look at, first of all. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with the courtship, and this couple is falling in love. In chapter 3, it highlights some of her fears and her dreams, and in chapter 4 is the wedding and the consummation of their coming together in chapter 5, verse 1. So let's take a look at chapter 1. It begins by saying this is Solomon's Song of Songs. And the woman says, let, me, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And her friends respond by saying, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than why. Here is a young woman who is deeply in love. She longs for his embrace, his kiss. She's thinking about her guy all the time. And she is longing for her wedding day, the day when they will come together and her friends rejoice with her. And those of you that are married, and you know what those initial days of romance and attraction were all about, and how when you were falling in love, you couldn't spend enough time with that person that you were falling in love with. And you found your thoughts drifting to them all the time, all day, all night. When you got up in the morning, it was probably they were the first person you were thinking about. When you bet, went to bed at night, they were the person that you were thinking about because you were falling in love. And this woman is falling in love with her guy and she wants to be with him. And she goes on in verse 5 to talk about herself. And she's kind of self-conscious of her appearance. The friends say, how right they are to adore you. And she says, dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. She's self-conscious because she is tan kind of interesting. Today, most people want to have a good tan and they don't like looking uh, too white, like they've been out of the sun. In that day, those that were wealthier didn't have to work in the fields. And so their skin was fairer, lighter. And those who had to work that were more common laborers were dark and tan. 
interesting how from culture to culture things that we value and view as beautiful can change. And so she says in verse 6, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, my own appearance, she's saying, I have neglected. And tell me, you whom I love, where do you graze your flock? And where do you rest your sheep at midday? She wants to find her man. She wants to know where he is grazing his flock. And she says, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flock of your friends? In those days, sometimes those that were prostitutes would follow after the shepherd boys. And they were veiled, but they would be like a woman looking for any man. She's saying, I don't want to be like that. I want you. My desire is for you. And so I want to know where you are so I can come and be with you. And the friends say, if you do not know, most beautiful of women... Follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Go to where he is. And how does this young man, how does he feel about the woman that he loves? Well, in verses 12 and following, excuse me, this is still the woman speaking. I'm going to get into it a little bit later. Uh, She says, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Like the aroma of a perfume goes through a room, she is aware of his presence at all times. And she is looking forward to him. And how does he feel about her? Well, it begins in verse 15 when he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. And again in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You are like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the maidens. What he's saying is that out of all the women he has seen, she is the most beautiful by far. Why? Because she is the one that he is falling in love with. And he is attracted to her. And he longs to be with her as well. You know, I think that all of us that have gone through this experience in our life know what that is like. We can relate to that experience. That when you are falling in love, the one person's voice that you notice is the person that you love. When they walk into the room, you notice them. And you are aware of their presence. And there's a sense for that man, she is my woman. She's the one that I love. And for that woman, he is my man. He is the one that I love. And everything else is kind of tuned out, and that's what was going on here. That kind of love is special. It is a gift from God, the Bible says. And what we are seeing in these first two chapters is that attraction being expressed in beautiful ways in the language of poetry. But secondly, we see in this book a warning about love. And it tells us that true love waits We see that in chapter 2, verse 7, and then again in chapter 3, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And in chapter 3, verse 5, again, it says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. 
It's a recognition that when people are falling in love and want to be close to one another, the whole desire of the way that we are made leads toward intimacy. And what it's saying is there, don't go there too quickly. Don't awaken love until it is time. Until you are ready to make that kind of commitment to one another in a faithful, monogamous relationship as husband and wife. Wait. Wait to have sex until you are married. Now, why does the Bible say that? Well, there are many good reasons why, and we see that in our world. There are good reasons to wait, for example, emotionally. And the Bible talks about how when two people come together in that most intimate of relationships, two become one. Not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally, that connection is there. And that's why it is so painful when it is ripped apart. And to those of you who are teenagers or young adults that are not married, I could save you a lot of pain and grief in your life if you would just listen to this one word of Scripture and wait. Wait until you are married to become physically involved with another person. And you will be blessed. You see, physically, when people have sex before marriage, there's always the risk of unwanted pregnancy. And I know that uh, things that people take today to prevent pregnancy have minimized that risk more. But there is still always the danger of sexually transmitted diseases, too, which have become rampant in our culture. There are so many that are lifelong that even can result in a person not being able to have children in sterility. And there are lifelong consequences. Some of those diseases, like HPV, you can pass on to your children that are born. And there are consequences that go not just from the couple, but to your children. And yet, when a person, a couple, choose to wait and to be faithful to one another, they can come together in that most intimate of relationships without fear. And spiritually... Just to be quite frank and blunt about this, sex outside of the bounds of marriage is sin. It is wrong. It is sin. And that needs to be said in our day and age when many people want to simply skirt around that or excuse that. In Hebrews 13.4, the Bible says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer those who are married and who have sex outside of marriage, and he will judge the sexually immoral, which refers to premarital sex and all other kinds of sex. So why should you wait? Well, those are good reasons, but often there are people who say, well, why should you wait if you plan to get married? I mean, I'm planning to be in this relationship with this one person, and today it's quite common for people to live together before they are married. Why should you wait? Because God's word still applies. It's still sin. And studies have shown that the greatest proof of faithfulness in marriage is faithfulness before marriage. That if you have the willingness to honor God and to practice self-control before marriage, it is the greatest proof to your spouse that you will be faithful in marriage. Now, I know that in a group such as this, there may be some today that are living together. And there may be those who have not followed God's plan for this. And my purpose in sharing these things is not to condemn you. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
But my purpose is to lift up what God has said in His Word and to call you to live in obedience to that and to take the steps that would fit with that because this is God's design for our good. And when we follow God's Word, there is great freedom and joy in that. You know, there was a woman who was teaching a high school Sunday school class and she wanted to teach a message, a lesson on purity. And the way that she did that was she brought a bouquet of roses into her classroom one morning and she intended to give each of those students a rose that day. But before she did it, she took one of the roses out of that vase and she uh, passed it around to the students. She wanted them to look at it, touch it, and feel it. Feel the texture of the rose. Smell the fragrance of the rose. Take a look and examine this rose. And it was passed around to all the students and then when it came back, she put it in the vase. And then, before the class was going to leave that day, she had all the students come and take a rose. They would take with them as a kind of object lesson about what they were talking about that day. And you know what? No one wanted the rose that had been felt and examined and touched. And she said, you know, in the same way, no one wants the girl or the guy who has slept with everyone. No one wants the person who's been passed around from guy to guy or relationship to relationship. And yet that happens a lot in our world today. And if that has been the situation for you, again, there is forgiveness and there is the opportunity in Christ to become a new creation in Christ. To admit our sin, to be honest with God about that and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And would you help me to love you as you love me and to begin again? what you have intended. And it is a marvelous thing that in the Gospel there is such grace. And we see examples of that. We're going to see that, you know, God's grace with Ruth, the Moabite. We're going to see God's grace. We see it in the Gospels with Mary Magdalene or with others that were there. Remarkable stories of forgiveness and healing. How are we doing? I think I'm going to, I'm going to save the next point the next time that we get together. But I'm going to talk about in the chapter that follows and, and beyond how true love really is like a return to the Garden of Eden. Let me skip to the conclusion and a few with the notes can jump to that. The point of what I want to say today is that there is, it is possible to find true love in this world. That kind of love between a man and a woman is a gift from God. And it is worth waiting for. It is worth celebrating. It is like a taste of heaven. And we're going to lift up the ideal here of marriage and God's intent. And we'll talk about the reality of where we are the next time when I, I'm on this subject. But I want to suggest for those of you that are here, there are a lot of ways to grow in this area. We have a great marriage class going on right now. And I would suggest that you, if you haven't thought about that, sign up to take that. You can go to a marriage conference such as the Weekend to Remember that's been a tremendous encouragement to many people. You could read a good Christian book on marriage, and there are many that are out there today that are great resources. Or if there are particular questions and challenges that you are facing, you could talk to a pastor, a marriage mentor, or a Christian counselor. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your scripture that does speak to all of life. And I feel like we've just gotten into it a little bit today and we'll come to this again. 
But I thank you for that. I thank you for the openness with which your word speaks about these kind of personal things. And Father, I thank you for the freedom and blessing and joy there is in a marriage when two people love you with all their heart and love one another. And what a joy that brings to life and what a blessing that is to a church and to a community to have those kind of marriages and relationships. I pray that that would be the result of our study together. In Christ's name, amen.